everybody, welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelitz and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. As always, joined here by my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. We told our listeners it'd be a little bit choppy in the fall. Uh, life, you know, life events happen, family weddings, uh, big SEC college football games, whatnot. But we are back. We are ready to roll. Uh, it's great to see you as always, Steve. Um, Ben Shelton, 12 months ago, really started to make his move on the Challenger Tour. He then, what, quarters in Australia, semis at the U.S. Open, wins his first title at a 500-level event in Japan, loses a tight uh, match to Yannick Sinner in his first match in Earth 7675. Yannick, who just won, won the tournament a few hours ago. We're recording this on, what, Sunday, October 29th. At around 1.30 Eastern time. Steve, I'll leave it to you. Big match Ben is what they call him. Well, listen, you alluded to Australia. Obviously, the Australia was start the start of something substantial for him. He'd never been out of the country. It was a remarkable achievement to get to the last eight in Melbourne. Then he really took some hard beatings between there between Australia and the US Open. So what I find so great is, okay, he, 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 he surpasses his Australian performance by getting to the semis of the Open. Now, that, that this was the test. I kept wondering, okay, what's he going to do this time following a great major? He's been terrific because in Shanghai, he beat Sinner, and then he lost a tough quarterfinal to Corda, but it was still a good performance. you know. And then he goes on, and, uh, and, and now he's won his first title. You know, it, you know, and he did it. And he was down in the semifinals against Jerome uh, over in Japan. He was down a, a set and two breaks, five, two down, second set, two breaks down, pulls it out, wins the final over Karatsev. And then, as you alluded to this past week, still a good performance against Sinner because it was one service break in the whole match, David. He, Shelton lost six and five, one break at five all in the second is all. That's the only time he lost his serve. So even though he was not able to beat Sinner in the rematch, he still performed commendably. So I, I'm very encouraged. I think he's shown everybody, David, that this this time, you know, he's moved to another level. Australia, he had some lessons to learn, maybe match playing lessons and getting out there on the tour and and having to defend his reputation. Now he's not having to do that. He's he's going to end the year somewhere around 15 or 16 in the world. And he'll go to Australia with great confidence that he can replicate what he did there a year ago, maybe surpass it. So I think it's been very impressive what Ben Shelton has done ever since the U.S. Open. Let, let me ask you this, Steve. What's exciting for, I think, uh, us and, and uh, all tennis fans is we still think there's ways to go in Ben's game. He's not at his ceiling yet, right? And then maybe you look at some other U.S. guys, you say to yourself, and this is no knock on any of these, it's just what we're, what we're throwing out there is, you know, how much better is Taylor Fritz going to get in his career? How much better is Tommy Paul going to get in his career? And you could say that for a bunch of U.S. guys. And hey, they're all doing great. This is not a knock. I'm just talking about the development of where they are at in their careers. I think for Ben, and I'm, I'm eager to hear your thoughts, Steve, um, he's not a finished product. No, not at all. And I couldn't agree more with your point. The, the ceiling is not that much higher for Taylor or Tommy. And they're going to continue, and or Tiafo. Francis, yes. It, it is for Corda. I think Corda can get a lot better, but there's no doubt in my mind that among the American contingent, 
Ben Shelton has the, by far the, 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 the best potential. And he's showing, and look, left-hander, such a tricky serve to read. The only guy I've seen so far that seems to be able to pick it was Djokovic at the U.S. Open. Otherwise, he's confounding guys with not just the 149-mile-an-hour thunderbolts, but the vicious wide slice in the ad court, mixing it up in the deuce court. You never quite know what's coming. And what's been really impressive, David, since the Open in these tournaments since Flushing Meadows is the improvement in his ground game. He just looks so much more consistent from the backcourt. And he's in, uh, everybody uses the phrase rally tolerance. Well, he's got a lot more rally tolerance and he's looping more balls back and staying in points and waiting for openings. So I, I'm seeing even a different player than I saw in New York right now in the tournament since. And so it's going to be fascinating to watch him. He may end up playing Djokovic again this coming week uh, in, in, in the Paris indoor event. It's very possible they could meet in the round of 16. And uh, that'll be interesting. I mean, obviously, it'd be tough for him to beat Novak, but it'd be, just be interesting to see uh, how that one plays out and it, what, what kind of strides he shows and if Djokovic can get up mentally for that match the way he did for the U.S. Open. I suspect he will. But no, no matter what happens there, uh, Shelton has ended the season very impressively. And very different elements if they were to match up in Paris, because it would be indoors that serve. You could yeah. make an argument that it could be even more lethal than it already is. Yeah, I think it's very possible. It's very possible. Now, it, you know, conditions are pretty quick, even uh, out of the open. That was technically indoors. The roof was up for those 75. That's true. That is true. But, but, but even so, I think maybe it could be a bit quicker in Paris. And I and. Yeah, it'll just be interesting to see how he approaches that match and how Novak does should they meet. But there's a good chance that they will. Let's, let's see. That would be an interesting one to watch. Okay, let's talk about the final in Earth. It just got completed about an hour ago. Um, incredible match between uh, Sinner and Medvedev. Sinner wins 7-6, 4-6, 6-3. Uh, if you haven't seen the match, go see some of the highlights that you'll see on social media. There were some incredible games, some incredible points. Sinner hit a forehand that I, I don't know if I've ever seen a faster forehand than that. Um, Steve, break that final down for everyone. Wow, it was fascinating because the first set obviously could have gone Medvedev's way. He had the early break for 3-1. Sinner got it back. Then they go to the 12th game. Sinner saves a set point on his serve with a service winner down the tee, which was one of his most effective serves of the, of the day. And uh, that got him into the tie break, but he was down 4-1 in the tie break. And he came back again, and he had set point and got a little over anxious, and then had to save a set point, which he did beautifully with an ace down the tee again in that ad court. And he wins that tie break 9-7. So that was, cru that was crucial, because even though Medvedev found his range in the second set and went up 5-2-2 breaks, Sinner was still feeling pretty comfortable, and he managed to get one of those breaks back, which, by the way, I think carried him into the third set with more confidence. Medvedev wins the second 6-4 rather than 6-2, and it just sort of changed the feeling of it. And then the third set was just spectacular on both sides of the net, David. Just absolutely remarkable, because at the beginning, uh, you know, Sinner had three break points to go up to love. Medvedev fended him off there, and, and then uh, they had that uh, incredible point at one all the 30 love for Sinner when he hit the, the most spectacular forehand of the year, maybe down the line like a rocket for a winner. Cannon. God, went shot out and, like a cannon. And, you know, uh, Darren Cahill, his coach, was smiling and the courtside box in uh, no other reaction but astonishment. But then Sinner almost threw that game away. 
because he decided it was as if he decided I'm going to hit more shots like that. I'm going to do it again. I'm not satisfied with that one. And he, he kind of rushed himself out of a couple of points. And the next thing you know, he's down break point, but he got out of that game. And he uh, then uh, in the, in with Medvedev serving in the fourth game, they had 12 deuces, 12 deuces. And, and finally on the ninth break point, uh, Sinner manages to break through. So you thought then after that game, which was somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes long, I mean, incredible, uh, in, incredibly hard fought on both sides and that well played by both too, that that was maybe going to take the life out of even as resilient a competitor as Medvedev. No, he broke right back in the next game. But Sinner was so uh, determined and unwavering that he took the next two games at the cost of two points and went to 5-2 and had a match point on Medvedev's serve, which narrowly missing a back end down the line into the net tape. So Medvedev escapes that and gets to 15-40 in the last game. And boy, we thought it was going to be maybe that classic syndrome of uh, a a break point opportunity eluding one player and then he loses his own serve in the next game. But We talk about that all the time, Steve. That pattern seems to happen so often and it it went right in my head as soon as that happened. But Sinner, to his credit, didn't allow it to happen this time. In the 1540, he took advantage of a good break. He had a drop shot that wasn't re- that hung a little bit, and Medvedev was onto it pretty quickly. Tried to roll his forehand down the line into the corner and hit it long, and that was a that was a very uh, costly mistake for Medvedev because from there Sinner won three straight points and closed it out very confidently. He deserved the win. He uh, you know he was good under pressure in the first set, and he came back strong in the second, and then. In that hard-fought Titanic third set, he was in the in ultimately he was the better player. So here's a guy that had lost six times in a row to Medvedev in their careers, including the Miami final earlier this year, and now he's beaten him in two straight finals since the U.S. Open, which is remarkable, and that's a big lift in his confidence. In that span, David, you know, we also saw in the first of those tournaments that he knocked off Carlos as well, center to take the lead in their career rivalry. So really now. The only player that he hasn't proven he can beat in the upper reaches is Novak. They haven't played too many times, and Novak beat him in straight at Wimbledon this year, beat him at five-set Wimbledon's uh, match last year, too. Um, that's going to be interesting to see the upcoming clashes between Sinner and Novak to see if he can make more inroads there. But he has, against everybody else, shown that his game matches up just fine against theirs. And this was, I think, an important win to prove to himself and everybody else that that first win over Medvedev was not a fluke and that he now has the upper hand in the rivalry, which he appears, which appears to be the case. What a, what a fun final. And to see the quality again, I'm, I'm one of the, the really a harsh critic on all the tennis that's played after the U S open. I admit it. I, I don't like it and I'll continue not to like it. Um, but to see that quality of a final between two top players of the game still at this point in the year um, was, was quite extraordinary. I do want to well, mention, oh, go ahead, Steve. Just a couple of things there. I think there are a few reasons for that. They're pushing hard to get to turn and try. Everybody wants to win that year end championships, which is only for the top eight players, the round robin event, two groups of four. So there's that. And, and then that carries them with some confidence into next year. So I think they're, they're a lot of these guys are making a big push and this has been a, a great uh, part of the year for Sinner, who had a disappointing loss to Zarev at the U.S. Open when he was hurting a bit. And so for him, this is a, a, re- a chance to really come into 2024 with some steam. And also, in his case, to go to Turin and play in front of the home fans 
And he, I think he's very excited about that. In Medvedev's case, he's really tried so hard, David, to get gone. Here's a guy that won five tournaments in the early part of this year between post-Australia and through Rome. He had won five titles. And the last of them was his first clay court title in Rome. So he was looking like he was going to be a contender for number one this year. And then he lost, shockingly, in the first round of the French to that Brazilian qualifier. I never pronounce his name right. You and I tried. Sebeth Wild. But Sebeth Wild upset him in the first round there. He still bounced back. Semis of Wimbledon. Finals of the Open where he beat Carlos, which was a lift, even though he lost to Novak. was a very good tournament. But now two final round losses to Sinner since then and another loss to Corda. So I think he's a bit disappointed with with considering the hard work he's put in he'd like to end the year on a higher note and go back to australia believing that maybe he's got a real shot there it's been a tough time of the year for daniel really surprising given what he'd done up to rome that he hasn't won a title since well said um i i do want to also mention a player who also won a, won a final today um again just about just an hour maybe a little bit less than an hour ago um, it was the Swiss indoors final. That's Felix Ajir Aliassim beats Hubie Herkosh. Felix, this this is a, almost a feel-good type of win for Felix, right? Because it wasn't uh this this year has not been not been a fun year for him. No, you couldn't be more right. And he got to a semi earlier in the year and they hadn't even gone back that far in any tournament since. It'd been a succession of really disappointing losses, and he completely lost his confidence. He suffered some injuries. But here's a guy that lost his first eight finals in his career, David. Now he's won five of his last six. And this was a good weekend to beat Holger Runa in the semis and then knock off uh, uh, Hubie uh, Herkosh, who's played so well in recent weeks and was won, his, won the 1,000 event in Shanghai. And so uh, that was a big win for Felix. And he defended his title in Basel. And that, so, again, this is a chance for him to restore his pride as he heads into next year. He's not going to have any, any chance to make it to – Turin, but he'll he'll look to do well in Paris this coming week. That was a big win for him, and he looked like he looked like the the Felix of 2022. Uh, the way he was serving, I mean, he was almost unbreakable in the final against Hubie. He didn't lose his serve. He didn't even face a break point. Kurkash didn't get broken either, but at least he faced five break points. And then in both tiebreakers, Felix wins at six and six. He was the better man in in the breakers under pressure. So I'm happy for him too because. He's an immensely appealing fellow. The galleries love him, smiles easily, has a kind of feeling to me. I, I kind of think of Muhammad Ali. Now, he's not a showboat like Muhammad, but he has that same kind of appeal to crowds, I think, in the way he carries himself and his dignity, his demeanor. And I, I think he's great for the game. So I'm, I'm really happy that he won that title. And he looked healthy out there and just so athletic. I couldn't agree with you anymore about how you described him. He's, he's just such a great athlete, such a great build for the sport. Um, his demeanor is great too. So it's always good to see Felix do well. All right. We mentioned him briefly earlier in the, or earlier in the episode, but Taylor Fritz, first off, happy belated birthday to Taylor. It was his birthday a few days ago. Um, the last three losses for Taylor, Steve, have been seven, six in the third. I mean, talk about brutal. I mean, that is as brutal as, as it could get. And at this time of the year, it could be especially brutal because he's still in a pretty good position for turn, but it's not a shoe in by any means right now. No, he, he'll, he'll take that slim lead he has over Herkosh. He's in ninth place. He's got to, he's got to have a good 
at Paris Bercy, he's got to do really well. And maybe, he, you know, maybe can, maybe he'll be able to clear his head and say, look, you could have won any of those three matches. That's that's tennis. Now, it, it can turn your way at any in, at any moment. And maybe this is the moment. So I, 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 I'm not I'm not going to count him out. I think that, you know, he's it's been a disappointing stretch to be sure. But I expect him to to play well in Paris and give himself every possible chance to squeeze in there and. And uh, he, he just might pull it off. But it has been a rough stretch, considering how much better he played earlier in the year. Correct. And we've mentioned it a few times now. The final Masters 1000 event is coming up on starting tomorrow. Um, you've already seen Carlos and Novak practice together. That was fun. There's some good videos online um, of watching them go play some practice points and practice sets. So go check that out. Um you know, as we, a, appro- as we approach that tournament, um, you you know, it, it's it's so weird for me that you're still doing a 1,000 event at this stage of the year. But uh, to, to our eyes, I mean, Carlos, he pulled out of a tournament earlier, right? But we think he's healthy right now. Novak, as far as we're concerned, is healthy, 100% ready to roll. It'll be interesting to see uh, how this field plays out. Because in the past, Steve, this Paris Masters field can sometimes get really, really wacky. It depends on the year, but in, in, in this case, yeah, there's going to be a lot of guys highly motivated. In the case of Alcaraz and Djokovic, it says a lot about both of them. Djokovic has got a 500-point lead in the race right now to try to see who's going to end the year number one, because Carlos, as you mentioned, he had to pull out of Basel. Two injuries, one to his foot, you know, a planner's injury to his foot, and then a different one, a muscle in his, in a different muscle injury on top of that, so Apparently he's fine physically, but the fact that those two who who are you know se- separated by 16 years, one two in the world, and that they want to practice with each other despite the fact that they're so competitive in the rivalry and it means so much to both of them, well, what what, what more can you say? I mean, I, I'm I'm just impressed that they have this mutual respect that allows them to do that. They don't feel like they have to hide anything from each other. They go out and practice and enjoy it. And knowing that there's a potential for them to meet in the finals year, knowing what's at stake, both in Paris and Turin, to see who's going to end the year at number one. And yet there they are practicing. I, I love to see that. Love it. And I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think they faced each other indoors. No, no. They had a clay court match in 22 in Spain that Carlos won in the third set tiebreak. Right. A clay court match this year in Roland Garros. Then that obviously that Wimbledon final in the grass and the hard court match in Cincinnati. So this would be a first indoors. And who's to know if it comes up this week? But you got to believe there's a reasonable shot that if it doesn't happen in Paris, that they will meet in Turin. So I'm I'm very impressed with both of them. You know, Alcaraz to have the maturity of that young and to accept that Djokovic is a what a great rival he is. And Novak not to feel threatened in in some psychological sense by Carlos to the point where he's, he's, he's going to go out and practice with him, you know, and he's done that with other rivals in the past. He was up. There were times he practiced with Rafa in the past when they, when they were going to play this tournament. I, I, I like that whole attitude and, and uh, they're both great representatives of the game, Alcaraz and Djokovic. And for the, uh, you know, maybe the listeners that don't follow the sport as closely as, as some others do, a lot of times players do that when they see the draw come out and they're the, on the opposite side of the draw. So they know they're not going to face them in the first, second or third round. Right. 
there's been times where players sign up to practice with someone that before the draw comes out, the draw comes out and they meet each other in the first or second round and they'll cancel the practice, which is understandably. So Um, in this case, obviously if, if Novak plays Carlos, it's going to be in the final. So there's a lot of tennis to be played up until then. That's true. On the other hand, I, I, there are, there are, you, there are other times when even the two guys who might not meet in the final still didn't want to see each other on the practice. If court. they didn't like each other, for sure. <laughs> yeah, they didn't like each other. And that's the whole point, that these two do. And Djokovic and Medvedev also get along well. They were practicing prior to the U.S. Open and met in the final there. So, yeah, it depends on that. But I think it, 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 it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's healthy for tennis when that kind of thing goes on. And the fans also for people to be able to see that. For them to be able to watch that practice session is a thrill. Thrill, absolute thrill. Okay, we've we've covered the men. We're 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 current now in the men. We have to talk about the women because they have their WTA finals starting tonight. Um, the the Maria Sakari gets in because of an injury, but you know, however she gets in, she gets in. Um, I want to hear your thoughts going into this tournament and specifically on. I can't believe we're st- it, it happened. I'm so happy it did. The 2023 U.S. Open champion, Miss Coco Goff. Well, Coco is going to come into this tournament, David. I think uh, kind of very fresh and eager. Hasn't played that much since the Open. She had one loss to Ego, which was understandable. And she she should be ready physically and mentally. And 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 not a lot of pressure, by the way. She's not really. It, the, the, the number one battle is really coming down to Sriantec against Sabalenka. Sabalenka trying to fend her off. Coco doesn't have to think about that. She just thinks she only wants to be thinking of adding another significant title to her growing collection. And I think um, I think she'll be very dangerous there. And and, and she and Pagula, of course, were, were wiped out there last year in singles and doubles. They had a terrible year-end championships combined, singles and doubles. But they're both going to do very. I think they're both going to do well this time. Coco, I would say, you know, I, I would I would give Sabalenka and and um, uh, Iga a better chance to win the tournament. But I I think Coco is. I put her at close three behind them, and I, I definitely don't put it past her to pull this off because I think the U.S. Open was it took such an incredible burden off her shoulders. All that all the criticism she'd had o- over the previous year about you know, fulfilling her potential and, and everybody worried about her forehand. There were so many deep concerns in the tennis community about her. And we, we, she, she's put cast all that aside by winning in New York. So now I just feel like, especially this tournament, she'll enjoy it. She'll do her best and she'll have a, a reasonable chance to win it. And then we'll see her head into 2024 and go after that Australian open title. But I, I think Coco is going to be a serious factor in this event. And, uh, I don't know. I, I I feel like, and even with the other two, she's got a, a decent shot against Sabalenka. Or, or we know this, and she's beaten both. Of, she's beaten both of the of those top two players. We we saw what happened in the U.S. Open final. We saw what happened over the summer when she beat Iga. So she's capable of doing it again. I you know these year end these year end championships are so tricky to me because it's it's so different than a regular tournament. A lot of times you could kind of maybe they say work your way into a tournament. You maybe get some easy matches first run in. These year end championships, these draws are I mean are brutal. You start from the get go with the round robin format, then you get to semis and the final. There's no weak link in these fields, none zero. So you got to be ready to go 
straight from the shoot. It will be interesting to see who these, uh, which players really kind of step up their game even higher than, than, than maybe they are already at right now. Um, and then, as you said, maybe someone who comes in really high rank, they just get blitzed and you see if that carries over into 2024. It's always really interesting for me to see just because the draws are so extremely difficult every single match. Yeah, and in this case, it's just interesting. I, I mean, Coco having just come off her first major, I don't think there's any downside no matter what happens aside from not winning a match. And I don't think she's going to allow that to happen. But it's a little different with Sabalenka and, and Suyanta. Sabalenka won the first major of the year in Australia and then had some agonizing losses after that at Roland Garros, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. Great chances in the semis of, of the French and Wimbledon and then lost that match to Coco after a strong start at the Open. So she wants to validate her number one status and say, okay, I, didn't, I only won the one major, but I was right in there in the others, two semis in the final. If I win this, I'll show it everybody. I'm just sort of underlining my supremacy. And in the case of Iga, she's had a, a kind of a tougher time since the French. And again, she'd like to get back and win a, 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 what is arguably the most important title in women's tennis outside of the four majors and, and find a way, depending on how the math works out, to finish the year number one herself. So it, I, I, I find it particularly interesting from the standpoint of those two players. For uh, for our viewers going for our viewers going forward, we will be more consistent now with um, releasing the pod just because of what's at stake right now. Right, we got the we got the final Paris Masters event. We have the WTA finals. We'll we'll kind of get you to the end of the year as far as our plans. Um, Steve, this this was fun. I know we've done this for what a, a three years now, and now we're starting to dress alike with our hoodies now. So we're really getting in sync right now. So. Well- I, 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 it happened today. I don't know if you're going to see me back in the hoodie again anytime soon, but I was just about to have my workout when we're done here. So I, I, I left it on, but it was, well, I liked it. I like to see the casual Steve Flink. So again, uh, thank you. This was a lot of fun and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do this again next weekend, you know, wrap up. Um, we'll be wrapping up about the Paris masters. Well, we'll try. We'll hopefully be at a stage where we can wrap up the Paris masters and the WTA finals as well. Well, that would be a lot of fun. You know, I find that week very enjoyable going back. I mean, I never, I can hardly get out of my chair all week. I have to make sure to get a little exercise because there's so much going on to watch. And both of them are have so much prestige. So looking forward to both tournaments. Thanks.